full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Stay tuned for the stranger than fiction story of the Cuban immigrant who went from honor student at the University of Miami to the heights of the Medellin cocaine cartel, to prison, to PhD, to podcasting and publishing. Do stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR member station VPM News, using the power of media to educate, entertain, and inspire. More at vpm.org. My guest this week is George Valdez, and I don't know how to describe George's biography very easily, but let's say he went from being one of the top uh, students at the University of Miami in the mid-1970s to, in his own words, becoming the U.S. head of the Medellin drug cartel, where he knew spectacular power, pleasure, and wealth and a sense of corruption that you said you could not escape. You authored the book Coming Clean. You've since earned your theological PhD and a master's degree from Wheaton College. And and now, sir, you have a podcast and you're advising young people and prisoners. Did that sum it up right? Yeah, that sums it up pretty well. One of the things that I say about the Medellin drug cartel, Robin, was that when I started in 76, I was a founding member of the group that eventually became known as the Medellin drug cartel. But like I talked later on in life, there was really no Medellin drug cartel. That's just a name sure. that the Americans gave us, the government, so they could unite a, a, you know, a whole bunch of group of guys together under one name. That way they have one common enemy, and it was very, very uh, functional for them. But in reality, it wasn't like the cartels we see today, the Sinaloa, you know, uh, all of those different cartels that are unique in themselves. We were all five different groups. I mean, we were one group originally that controlled 95% of all the cocaine that came into America. And that's not me saying it. That's what the government accused me of because you know, I never, I never. Uh... Well, it's amazing. You know, you and I crossed paths for my book, Hotel Scarface, where cocaine cowboys partied and plotted to control Miami. And I thought it was so irresistible because once you think about the Medellin cartel and Pablo Escobar and uh, Rodrigo Gacha and everybody, it's decidedly Colombian. But they did need Cubans. They needed Cubans in South Florida who knew the coastline, the entire experience with the Bay of Pigs and. Um, uh, the, the CIA training kind of gone awry. The fascinating thing to me, and this is where you and I had a lot in common, is we're both immigrants who brought a, a tremendous amount of childhood trauma to Miami. And in your case, if you could walk me back to you and your family fleeing Fidel Castro's Cuba and when you came to the United States. Yeah, you know, and uh, and I really did. And I identify a lot with your talk that you gave for the TED Talk because, you know, I was an immigrant child. My family were very well off in Cuba. And, of course, at the age of 10, I mean, I had no idea we were coming to America. I just remember my mother saying, wake up, we're leaving. And uh, so I was in a daze, didn't understand why I was leaving all my friends, all my toys, everything. And her whole thing is, we're going to go to America where you're going to be able to worship God freely and we're going to start a new life. Well, I didn't see the need for a new life, but, you know, I came at the age of 10. But it was a very traumatic experience for me because my mother got left behind at the airport. And, uh, you know, I say that in my life, there was like three different pivotal points. And that was one of them, because what ended up happening at that moment, when I see my father didn't want to leave, hmm. I was 10, my brother was nine, my sister was five. And all of a sudden I see my mother crying saying, we're not, you know, I have to stay behind. Well, to me, you know, the world ended because, you know, typical Hispanic family, the mother is the one that's always around, is the center of the home. So we come to Miami sure. and we go, you know, you know how it was, uh, how... We were discriminated at the beginning. Also, we were, you know, confused. We're 10 years old. I was very poor. I was, you know, very wealthy in Cuba. Suddenly, I'm poor. 11 of us are sleeping in a one-bedroom apartment, one bathroom, writing down what time we're going to go to the bathroom because there's only one, and everyone had to go to school or work. 
And I was very, very confused. So my, my mindset at that time was that there's no God. I mean, my mother was crazy. But, you know, we, as the same as your family, we come from a similar background where we have parents that were very strong into education and uh, strong philosophy, strong morals, very strong work ethics. Uh, see my father, like you saw your father, sacrifice so much without ever complaining, which was really what was amazing because as a 10-year-old, I was complaining, and here was this 40-year-old man who had been a millionaire since he was 20, not saying a word, not complaining, cleaning toilets at uh, Jay Byron's, you know, and... So your dad, your dad worked as a janitor in Jay Byron's. You were a young kid. You still went to school. You guys went to church. You tried to keep the semblance of everything together, but you remember being hungry as a child yeah. in Miami. We, when my mother got left behind, my dad was making 85 cents an hour. The rent was $80. So basically all we had, Robin, was just a glass of this milk that they give powder milk from Vietnam that would not mix, and then all of a sudden uh, with two raw eggs. And that was all that we would get till later on in the evening when we would order a cantina, remember in Miami, they, they would uh, cater food to your house, and we would order uh, enough rice, beans, and uh, meat for two people, and four of us would eat out of that. And, uh, and I was hungry, and I could not understand what it was. I remember finding out a friend of mine was getting food stamps, and my, going to my dad and say, hey, dad, my friend gets food stamps, and he takes lunch to school. Do you know about that? He said, yeah. And I'm like, well, why don't we get it? He said, because that's for poor people. I'm like, holy cow, we haven't even gotten to poverty yet. I'm, and he's like, listen, if whoever takes help from the government stays, is poor and going to stay poor all their life. He remember clearly today, I'm 63, he pointed a finger at my chest, son, you get up early and you figure out how to help feed your family. I was 10 years old, weighing 70 pounds, but we did and we survived and we went on. You know, I still studied uh, hard. I went to, when I went to University of Miami, I worked for the Federal Reserve Bank. I was the youngest employee. I'd well, hold on. I mean, the interesting thing in this is it was so it was so kind of hand to mouth that the Magluta family bakery would I, just as a poignant thing in your book, Coming Clean, they would bring you cake scraps, cake carvings, and the like. And that was something that you and your brother fondly remember. That kind of sugar rush of of a, a family's charitable. Activity. No, and, and they became, uh, you know, Gloria, Sal's mom, became like my mother because my mother was in Cuba. Uh, when, my, when Sal's dad, he had business with my father. He owed my father money. My father had to sign to let him be able to leave the country. But when we came to the United States, they were doing really well. It was two brothers who married two sisters. They had a, the three little bakers, and it was fantastic. They would bring us, you know, those cake trimmings, and that was like to us like a filet mignon. I mean, and I remember Gloria paid for us to go to the Boy Scouts, which actually saved my brother and I. So, yeah, they were our second family. And, you know, look back, but it was amazing that as I, many years going back, looking, it was probably some of the greatest moments in my life. You know, we were together. We, we struggled together. We worked hard together. We survived. We have very, very little. But, you know, we had the presence of our father, and then our mother came in December, and then our family was complete. And, yeah, we were poor financially, but I look back, man. We were extremely wealthy as far as values and as far as, you know, uh, that unity of the home. Well, I do want to get to how you 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 mustered. I mean, your father is clearly a strong figure. He would not accept welfare. He would not accept food stamps. And I imagine that he wouldn't accept anything less than you being a great student. My, to my parents, the most important thing in life was education. You know, I, re I remember my mother when, we, you know, we were in Miami for three years. Very difficult to survive at that time. And the refugee department was settling people in different parts of the country. So we had an aunt in New Jersey, and we moved down there. And I remember my mother. I mean, we're dirt poor. Going up to the school and said, I'm here to put the Catholic school because to her that was the most important thing. And it's like, 
I'm here to enroll my kids. And this was December. And they're like, ma'am, school has already started, you know, back in September. And second of all, can you afford the tuition? And she's like, well, you know what? The church belongs to the people. And uh, no, I cannot afford, but you need to put my children in. I remember my mother sitting outside the archdiocese. And uh, until they let us in school, she would not leave. And eventually she got us into school because that was the most important thing for her is that we get an education because that's how we were going to become successful. Tell me about how you became the star student at the University of Miami. I mean, this was in accounting? Yeah, it was in accounting. What happened, uh, Robin, is to me, when, when, you know, I talk about it now as meeting the pseudo-American dream. You know, when I came to Miami, here's the second day my cousin comes in this beautiful candy apple red GTO, and I'm like, oh, my God, he's only been here three years before us, and look at him, he's already made it. If I work hard, if I sacrifice uh, and do whatever it takes, I have to be the best at whatever I do so that that way I will, you know, find this American dream where I can have gorgeous car and a beautiful mansion and, and, and the money and, and women. Well, you know, I had to be first. I mean, I, I don't know if it's something that's innate in me or, but for my parents is uh, a B, which is not acceptable. You know, it's like even you get an A minus, my mom would say, well, where you left the rest of the A? So we, we had that work ethic. That's all that mattered to them, that we go to school and that we be the best that we could be because that will lead, education will lead us to success. You got a full scholarship to the University of Miami? I got a full scholarship to the University of Miami, and at the same time, the Federal Reserve Bank was paying for my tuition. I was the only employee at the bank that they paid to go to the University of Miami. You know, they had tuition. I have to understand this. How did you get on the radar of the Federal Reserve? I want people to understand. So we're talking the mid-1970s in Miami. By 1980, the narcotics-driven economy of Miami was so flush that the Federal Reserve Bank had a $5 billion cash surplus, which I point out in the book is more than all of the other Federal Reserve Banks in the United States combined. So you were there as a, as a kind of an innocent student and everything, but at a time that that, that one bank was arguably the most prosperous and flush bank in America. No, and, and what happened, uh, my dad had a friend uh, from, that, from New Jersey that moved to Miami. He became uh, one of the head of security for the bank, and he recommended, I was just 17 years old, they didn't, didn't have no one that young working for the bank, but he told him, listen, interview him, this kid is brilliant. Uh, he's at the University of Miami, he would do great, and they hired me. They, I started part-time for a few months, and then I ended up work, getting a full-time job to the accounting department, and I was 17 years old at that time. But I was like a nerd. To me, it was like, Robin, I'd never seen drugs in my life. I never drank alcohol. I never went to a party where there was, you know, anything going on. All I ever did was I worked at the bank from 8 o'clock in the morning. I used to get there at 7.30. I leave at 5. And I had my first class at University of Miami at 5.45, you know, till 10 o'clock. Come home and study till 3 o'clock in the morning. I do that same routine day in and day out. So when they hired me, and the reason they, I, I remember when I wanted to go to University of Miami, of course, I couldn't afford to pay it back then. Thank God back then there was no student loans. I remember going to the vice president of the bank, uh, Jesse Watson, great man. And, you know, I kept showing him my grades and kept showing him how I was doing school. And he just couldn't believe that. Here I was going full time and holding a full time job. And he's like, you want to go to, because my first semester I went to Miami Day. He says, you want to go, we'll pay for your tuition. And they were paying, the bank had tuition reimbursement, but you had to go to the state of the community college. I was going to the most expensive school in Florida at that time. So they would pay for it. I was on full scholarship, and actually that was the money, the extra money that I had to be able to, you know, buy gas, insurance, because I had to give one check to my parents. And with the other check, I had to pay for my lunch, I had to pay for my books. 
So actually, because I wasn't full scholarship and the bank was paying for me to go uh, to the university, I was making, you know, whatever the tuition at that time was every semester. Even so, there was a side gig opportunity that surfaced at a time that Miami is quickly becoming the financial hub of, of Pan America. You get a side gig. Do I, do I understand this right? Setting up uh, shell companies or setting up offshore paperwork? What happened with that was when I graduated from Miami and I remember one of my uh, professors coming to me and say, hey, do you want to come work for me? He had been a partner at Price and Waterhouse in Michigan, came to Miami at this time. You know, now we're talking about 1976. If you didn't speak Spanish, you were in trouble in Miami. So he's like, look, if you do my Spanish clients, I'll give you an office. I'll give you a secretary. Well, at the bank, because I worked in the accounting department and part of the auditing department, I knew how shell corporations were started, where they were opened and, you know, roughly what they cost. So when I went to work for this group of people that was La Puerta del Sol, the first thing that they asked me was, listen, do you know how to open foreign bank accounts? And then I'm like, yeah, of course I knew how to open foreign bank accounts. And I never opened one, but I figured that if I go where I heard, heard that they were there and find the, uh, you know, the attorney's offices that handle it, I could do it. So, but... That came after I found out these people were drug dealers because when I first went to do this account, it was a little grocery store. And I'm, I mean, I'm as innocent as you can ever imagine. But I'm going in there, the, I never forget the first Monday. I go in there and I see $100,000 and I'm like, holy cow. Now think about that. Remember, in Miami, you could buy a great middle-class home for what, $20,000 during this time, 30? Sure. So I see this 100000 Robin, and I'm like, my God, where's this money coming from? This is just a little strip joint, 47th and Northwest 7th. And uh, so, but I never crossed my mind anything illegal. Ne- you know, next week I go there, seventy-five thousand. I'm like, man, something's definitely wrong because I know how much they're buying. They're not even buying a thousand dollars a month. How are they turning all this profit? So finally, when the third week I went and I saw another hundred, hundred and a quarter, I called the owner over and I'm like, listen, Abro, you gotta, we gotta talk about this. And I'm like, you know, the guy couldn't even hardly read or write. I'm like, look, in accounting, it's a basic formula. If you buy something for a dollar and you're lucky enough to sell it for $2, that's your profit. The problem here is you're showing $100,000 in revenue and you're buying $1,000. <laughs> you know, I tell people, like, I didn't know nothing about Jesus multiplying two fish and three bread because, man, I would have said, dude, you have nothing on this Colombian. They're multiplying 1000 a hundredfold. He's like, hey, listen, we're not a grocery store. We're we drug dealers. And I'm like, man. I hold that thought because we're going to unpack that. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to George Valdez. He's author of the book Coming Clean. Uh, I love this book. He was U.S. head of the Medellin drug cartel, uh, Cuban-born, and his life took several turns. He started at the Federal Reserve Bank in Miami, almost accidentally became uh, a drug kingpin, helped launch two of the biggest cocaine dealers in U.S. history, and went on after your time in prison and got a Ph.D. you found Jesus, and today you you lecture and help people in jail and, and young at-risk um, youth. Uh, I do want to get to your encounter with one Manuel Garces, uh, became a mentor of yours. This Colombian gentleman from Medellin was a was religious. His sister, I believe, was a was a nun who helped uh, tribes in the Amazon and whatnot. And you thought that engaging with him in this side gig you had, this side hustle, you were heading helping him set up uh, financing to buy banana boats. Is that right? Yeah. So. Through the Puerto del Sol, uh, one of the guys who used to come there all the time, Jaime, we became friends. And uh, he says to me, listen, there's a group of people that would like to talk to you. They're thinking about opening a brand new business here. And I'm like, sure. So he took me to this gentleman's house, Manuel Garces, 
and I met him for the first time, and there was three other guys. And this group was what originally became, I mean, this was the founding group of the Medellin cartel. This is what Pablo Escobar didn't even exist. Any of those people didn't even okay, exist. Okay, so it's, at this point, you still think you're dealing with produce people. Oh, is yeah. That what well, they're saying, allege. listen, we want to open, we want to buy a, a yacht, a boat. We want to open a brand new banana business. We have uh, banana plantations in Colombia, and I think it's a great business. Do a f- I mean, they handle it with me, Robin, like just so professional because Manuel was very educated. He's like, do, do me a feasibility study. Well, I did. And of course, it would have been very profitable. Little did I know that really what they wanted to import was cocaine, but I had no clue. So we opened, you know, did the entire infrastructure, uh, Kiss Bananas, uh, bought the label, the boxes. Uh, we went out and bought a boat, uh, a big ship that we converted to uh, refrigeration. And I mean, we were set to go. Uh, this was going to, and actually it was going to be a very, very profitable business. But in that process of that setting up the boat, and they're seeing how I'm moving, how I'm operating. Well, first of all, I said to them, if you want me to handle all this for you, I got to be equal partners and you got to put out my money because I don't have any, any capital to contribute. If I'm going to abandon my, because my plan was really just to make enough money to go to law school, University of Miami. If I'm going to abandon sure. that for now, I got to be equal partners and make it worthwhile for me. So they like done. In this banana boat business. In the banana boat business. But I go out to California to refurbish this boat, like a six month process. And the guy that's doing my refrigeration, uh, he had a softball team and I used to play, used to be a great baseball player. And he went ahead and he's like, we became real close friends and I would go to his house on the weekend. He started telling me, listen, I know that boat is just to import cocaine. Now think about this. This is 97, beginning of 97, uh, probably the end of 76, beginning of 77. I'm like, dude, no, it's not. This is a banana business. You think that I'd be involved with drugs and put my name as the president? And he kept kidding me about it. Well, when I would go to Colombia to tell Manny the progress of the boat, they started telling me, listen, we want you to handle all operations for us in the U.S. And I'm like, I mean, what are you talking about? i never seen cocaine in my life. I mean, what? <laughs> handle what? He said, look, we, imp- we import a lot of our coke into, we just need to start export. I mean, we need to start distributing it. And we need someone like you that is educated, clean record, does not drink, does not do drugs. And I'm like, I want nothing to do with that. I was making a lot of money opening this foreign bank accounts. But he's like, I kept insisting. And then I came up with my brilliant plan. My brilliant plan that I was going to get rid of both guys. So I said to Mel, the guy in California, listen, yeah, we're drug dealers, man, but we do nothing. We distribute nothing but the best. Now, I, in the meantime, I, I find out through Jaime what cocaine was selling in Miami which was about 42, 44,000. So I tell Mel, let's a kilo. A kilo. Uh, so I'm like, yeah, Mel, but you know what? We, we only sell the pure stuff and it's 70,000 a kilo. I figured that would just blow their mind and they would leave me alone. He's like, oh man, that's really high. I said, well, yeah, it is what it is. And I'm like, I'm done. It's happy. So I go to Colombia and I'm thinking to myself, well, shoot, I'll do the same thing with Manny. I'll just tell him, listen, Manny, you want me to handle everything? Fine, I'll do it. But you make me equal partners and you put up my money because I ain't got no money. Now, think about it. At that time in Colombia, you'd have to buy a kilo for 18000 cash because Colombia did not produce any cocaine. Colombia, the best that they ended up doing later on in the late 70, mid-77 was they started uh, creating laboratories to crystallize the paste that would come from Bolivia and Peru. Peru, Peru and Bolivia, yeah. Exactly. So this $18,000, and these people are bringing at this time, they're bringing 100, 200 kilos. And, you know, it's a lot of money. It's $3.6 million dollars. So I, I went to uh, Columbia and I told man, listen, I'll handle all operations for you, but I got to be equal partners and you got to put up my part of the capital. It was for them and I would be the fifth. 
I was so convinced, Robin, they were going to kick my butt all the way back to California, but I was going to find my peace. I was not interested in any of this, including the only thing I was interested in with in the banana business was, you know, I'm going to build this thing, we're going to sell it one day, and then I'm going to have enough money and open up my, finish law school, open up my law practice, and I'm on the road to becoming a millionaire by the age of 30. Well, lo and behold, when I presented that to Manny, he said, well, let me talk to my partner. And I was like, oh, man, now not only Manny's going to kick my butt, the rest of them are. But before I left Columbia, they're like, fine, we'll make you equal Let partner. me get this right. Let me, okay, let me understand this. This is before you re- recognized any patina of violence on the Medellin cartel. You tried to bluff your mentor, Manny Garces, in Medellin, and they came back and they're like, sure, we'll pay you. Yeah, exactly. And the funny thing about it, because it's also very important, uh, like you just said, at the beginning of the drug trade in uh, Miami, and in California, because even when I brought cocaine to California, a lot of people didn't even know what it was. They used to get it to mix it with heroin, you know, and call it a speedball. But at that time, there was no violence. I mean, Manny's thing all his life was, if you have to carry a gun to do business with someone, you don't need to do business. And for us, the reason in my mind, because take this young kid that never done nothing wrong, all of a sudden deciding to get involved in this, was because I looked at it like, look, this is a business for the rich and famous. I mean, who can afford $80,000 a kilo, $70,000, you know, $50,000 a kilo, two houses, and, you know, only rich people, people that I wanted to be like. So the mentality of the early 70s, as you know, by living in Miami, it was actually, sadly enough, glamorous. I remember many times Manny and I joking about, hey, we are the Kennedys of the 20th century. You know, the Kennedys made their fortune in alcohol. We're making it in cocaine. And bootlegging. Yeah. So we thought we're actually not doing you know, we're not harming anything, uh, not affecting any kid. You know, I remember a story. I don't know if I ever shared it in my book or told you, but I was asked to go up north and meet with the head of a big uh, Italian crime family. And I remember him presenting, and I just went with one guy. And I remember him presenting this business to me and saying, look, we want you to trade us cocaine for heroin. And they had all this thing, how they would do all this uh, deal and how it would make so much more money. And I remember, I mean, this, is, uh, this really shocked me until today because I, I was only 21 years old. I have braces. I look like a nerd. And I remember listening to him, and when he got finished, I'm like, sir, with all due respect, I don't get involved in business that kills children. Whatever you do is fine with you, but that's not our business. And they looked at me, and they're like, you know, like, get off your high horse. But the thing about it at that time was that, to me, if it was going to, even in the cartel, if they even find out that anyone was distributing cocaine to, to uh, people that were not adults, man, it would have been a tragedy. Even to Manny, if he ever found out that I used cocaine or anybody, I mean, it was all hell to pay. So it was strictly a business for the rich and famous, for, you know, celebrities, and nothing to be messed with. And I remember just walking away from that meeting up north and said, look, I wish you well with your enterprise, but we don't kill children. And look what happened now. Mm. Well, talk to me about that time you did try cocaine for the first time. You know, the time I tried cocaine for the first time, it was funny, was when I left the cartel. You know, when I left the cartel, you know, I, uh, I got married. I was married. And uh, my wife at that time, she had used drugs. And I had never, ever used any drugs. And it was sort of like, you know, I look back and what I talk about today, you know, addictions, whether it's alcohol, whether it's cocaine, whether it's pornography, whatever, they're, they're just nothing but remedies for one symptom. And the symptom is that emptiness within us, 
that emptiness that we just can't find meaning to things, and we medicate. We medicate with many, many things. Well, to me at that time, I'm making millions of dollars. I was making three, one to $3 million a month in 1977 when I was 21 years old. I had a fleet of yachts, jets, you know, dated the most beautiful women in the world. And the more I got, Robin, the emptier that I felt. And I could not understand why that now I had reached my pseudo-American dream. Now that I had everything anyone wanted to have, now that everyone wanted to be like me, why was I so empty? And eventually it was that period when I did try cocaine, but it must have lasted very shortly because, either, number one, I have an addictive personality. So therefore, when I feel that something's going to control me, I just don't let it. So I abandon it pretty quick. In the book, Coming Clean, you did talk about your first cocaine run uh, when you were in cahoots with the cartel in the late 70s. You wrote, before leaving Miami on my first cocaine run, I stopped to visit my parents. While mom prepared dinner, I slipped into my parents' bedroom. As memories of my mother praying so often in that room flooded my mind, I let down my guard and said in a hushed voice, quote, God, if you protect me in this deal that I'm about to do, I'm going to buy a better house for my parents. God, please make sure that nothing happens to me. You know that I'm not hurting anyone, that the ones who buy this cocaine are rich people and movie stars, and that I'm not doing something immoral. Quote, I honestly thought that I was telling God the truth. Well, it wasn't easy to extricate yourself. <laughs> no, no, and it wasn't easy at all. And I remember, well, here's a, we're on full disclosure, so let me, let me uh, disclose something about it. So when I wrote this book, I was doing my PhD. And what took the longest of writing the book was not writing the book, was editing each of the chapters. You know, you've been through the process when you got to cut pages and cut pages. And, it, and again, I'm doing my thesis, so it was super time-consuming. I never read the book after it was put together till I wrote my next book about a year and a half ago. So a lot of the God influences at the beginning were, I think it was sort of like edited in by the uh, publisher, but... In my mind, I wasn't doing absolutely nothing wrong. You know, it was like all I wanted was buy my parents a better house, which eventually I ended up making millions and they refused. They lived and died in the same house. They bought, you know, their second house where they bought after they came from Cuba. Uh, never took a car from me, never took jewelry, never accepted a dollar. To them, it was like, you know, listen, what you're doing doesn't please God. You're breaking our heart. But the beauty about it, the genius about my parents, just to deviate a second, is and, and this is a message for parents out there. My parents were tough, very, very tough on me. But you know what, Robin? The minute they said what they had to say, they're like, okay, son, what do you want to eat? You know, they let me know how they felt. They didn't waver. They did not cross the line. But at the same time, did not abandon me as their son. And that created a greater conflict in me. Because I could have handled, listen, you sorry human being. You know, we, we sacrificed so much to give you a better life. And you're throwing it all out the window. You know, all my mom and dad said is, you're killing us. But the minute she said that, she would not harp on it anymore. Then it was like, listen, why are you not here for dinner? I had to come home every day for dinner. So, you know, and that was the, the, the controversy in my life. One of the most surreal things that happened to you in a very surreal career, and now you say you're, you're, you're turning 63, is you were double-crossed by one Manuel Noriega, who turns out to be the strongman ruler of Panama until he was ousted in 1989 for running uh, a narco republic, if you will. But people forget that in the 1970s, he was the CIA's guy in Panama. And uh, George Bush Sr., the late George Bush Sr., worked with him. He... Uh, when your plane crashed in Panama, he comes over and he's thinking he can shake you down for 
uh, a bribe, a payout to get back to Miami. You witnessed uh, atrocious uh, levels of torture from uh, one of his interrogators, George Lino Latinez. Um, you saw people get killed. Uh, the guards threatened to light you on fire uh, with kerosene, I think, while they were smoking in the mornings. I can't imagine this. And then you got out and you thought you were going to be able to pick up where you left off. But when you arrived in Miami, you realized that he had reported you to the DEA after you'd paid him off. Well, what ended up happening when we first crashed in the jungles of Panama the attorney general came to see me, and immediately I said to him, listen, uh, how much to buy the cocaine back and how much to get out of here? Now, you know, I was very used to paying off, you know, even presidents of foreign countries at this time. And he's like, look, 250000 for you to leave, and the cocaine has been sold. So I'm like, okay, so we go in there, and I tell the—my the, mistake was I told the pilots, I just worked out a deal with the attorney general. They're going to take us to the city of Panama, roughen us up a little bit. And then we're going to go home. I, we had paid a million dollars to the president-elect of Costa Rica. So we're like, okay, we're going to go to Costa Rica, and then until we figure out what's happening in Miami, and then we'll be fine. So we go in down then, and sure enough, they take us to the city of Panama, and there's the DEA, there's Lino, and they bring this kid, probably 80 pounds, maybe 5'3", five, 5'4", five, completely naked. They lay him in the floor, and they stick a broomstick up his rectum, and Robin blood just flew all over the place. Well, the minute that happened, the pilots confessed. They're like, listen, not only is George the biggest drug dealer in America, he just bribed the attorney general. Well, buddy, for the next 20-some-odd days, they would torture us to the point that I wanted to die. I mean, I bled for five years every time I went to the bathroom and took a pee. But eventually, because I, what I feared was that I was going to go crazy, because what, it is a very interesting thing how our mind works. Now, if you would have told me back then I would have been able to sustain all them torture, I thought you're crazy. But I remember I'm in one of those times when, because they come in and they beat us till we pass out. Then they come back again. We were handcuffed to our backs and our feet, naked in this floor. And uh, I remember in one of those trances where I'm passed out, I see a picture of my son. And my son, when I got arrested, was only six months old. But in this image, he's about seven years old, and he's coming, and he's like, Crying. And I'm like, Jorito, why are you crying? He's like, Dad, because my friend said that my father is not a man. And I tell you what, Robin, at that moment I said, I will die here, but I'm never going to talk. So they kept beating us up. And then eventually when I thought that I was just going to go crazy, I started to think that, well, the best way to do is to threaten Noriega. He's going to have us killed. Because what was sad at that time was, yes, he was working for the DA, but you know what? He was also working for the cartel. So anyway, long story. Eventually, he comes up to the cell, and he's like, why are you threatening me? It was your pilot who ratted you guys out. And number two is, you paid the wrong man. So I'm like, all right, how much to get out? And it seemed like 250000 was a standard uh, you know, figure. Wait, this is, this, is you and, this is you and Manuel Noriega? Yeah, this is general. me right there, and I'm bleeding all over the place. I'm naked, and he, looks, he thinks that he's like a giant there. And he says, 250000 and I'll deport you the day after. So I... Tell him, let me make a phone call. He took me to a room. I made a phone call. Next day, he had the money. And sure enough, he took us to the airport, but he betrayed us because what he did is he called Interpol. And I was waiting for my flight to Costa Rica when all of a sudden they get all these agents coming through me and Harold, my co-defendant, inside the airplane like a sack of potato. We arrive in Miami, and I'm charged with heading the largest drug conspiracy in the history of America, given the highest bond ever, $7 million. And I had just turned 23 by three months. 
wow. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, 1979 is becoming 1980, and you have to tell us about, this goes back to the family that brought you cake scraps, the Magluta family. Uh, you almost accidentally, in your absence, seeded who became the biggest cocaine dealers, at least on the East Coast, Willie and Sal. Uh, when you needed somebody to move a kilo for you, they they were... They were friends. They were pals. Uh, they hung out with you at the Mutiny Club, the subject of my book, and uh, they did it, and then they wanted more. Think back at that. Talk to me. Well, let me tell you how it started. My father had three friends, Manolo, which is Sal's father, uh, Oscar, and another gentleman. And all three of them would meet at someone's house every day for coffee after dinner. At this time, I'm already 1978. I'm making, you know, $2, 3000000 million a month. I'm living a tremendous life. Sal, who at that time was literally with Willie distributing, selling grams at uh, Honey's for the Bear, kept telling my dad, listen, tell George to give me a chance, tell George to give me a chance. And I didn't want to. I didn't want to get it because I didn't want no one in Miami to know everything. We're making millions just selling in, uh, in California. And in Miami, all we would do is, like, if I brought in a load of 500 kilos, so 250 would be Manny and I, and then the other 250, I would split it between different groups of people. So mm. I, I didn't sell absolutely nothing in Miami. Then I finally one day when my dad, son, at least talk to him. You know, he's been your friend forever. And I'm like- Wait, your dad, hold up. So your dad understands this. I, this is what I don't understand. Your parents were not happy with what you were doing. But at the same time, your dad's like, help him out. Give him a kilo or two. Well, not really give him a kilo or two. In my dad's mind, I, whether he was thinking about giving, me, giving him a kilo or two, in my dad's mind is like, you got to talk to this kid. He's driving me crazy. You know, and uh, without, well, yeah, and I'm going to tell you, there's so many duplicities in, in our lives. But lo and behold, I, I called Sal over to my house and I'm like, okay, what can you buy? He says, I can buy a couple of kilos. And I'm like, okay, how much money do you have? And, and when he told me he had like, between him and Willie could put 20000 together, I'm like, dude, you cannot even buy, you cannot even pay for one kilo. So I'm like, look, let me see what I can do for you and I'll get back with you. And about six months passed. And then one, I was going to Europe. I just ordered a brand new uh, uh, Mercedes in Germany. I was going to go with my ex-wife to pick it up and spend a month in Europe. So we had just brought in a load and I had distributed, you know, the, our, our Coke that would go to California and then the one that belonged to different people. And there was 30 kilos that this guy couldn't show up. And I made a phone call to, you know, to set up a distribution with him. He didn't answer. So I'm either, the guy's dead, got arrested. So I'm um, listen. I'm leaving in three days, in two days. So I'm like, shoot, I'll see what Sal and them can do. So I remember calling Sal, and Willie came over. It was the first time I met Willie, and he's like, I said, look, I got thirty kilos that I can give you, and I can give you a month. I'm gonna go to Europe, and if you can do good with this, we'll think about where to go from there. Sal petrified. He's like, no, that's just too much. But Willie, you know, Willie just uh, whoever meets him loves the guy. He's like, I'll take him. So I'm like, man, this guy is pretty courageous. So I gave them the 30 kilos. And when I came back, they had my money, and then they wanted to buy more. And that's how they started to distribute, you know, larger amounts, but still not large. Because even until that time, until I got arrested, I was never giving them more than 50 to maybe 100 kilos a month, you know, in 1978. What would they have owed you for 30 kilos? Walk me through the economics of that. So one kilo you're selling wholesale, you know, friend to friend in Miami. Are you selling that at twenty thousand no. dollars? I mean, before it's cut no, no. or stepped on? No, it was. We were paying twenty thousand in Colombia at that time. We we're paying eighteen thousand, uh -huh. eighteen to twenty thousand in Colombia, and then we we're spending seven thousand dollars to bring it in. So in Miami, it was going between forty-two and forty-four thousand. 
So I gave it to him for 42 because, you know, I could, I could reimburse the people that own the cocaine cheap because they never picked it up. So I gave it to him for 42. I was selling ours in California for 70. Now they would buy the 42. They would step on it. You know, I remember one time. Step on it. Step on it. Explain that for our listeners. You'd bust it with uh, baby laxative or other things to kind of uh, dilute the purity of it so you could get two or three kilos out of one. Yeah. What ended up happening, I remember going to uh, Sal's one, one day and he's like, I'm going to buy me a new boat. And I'm like, okay. And then he is getting this cocaine and he takes this big old scoop out of uh, lactose, which was a baby laxative. He throws it in the cocaine because it looked just like it. And then he's like, hey, there's my boat. So basically what they were doing, they were taking one kilo of cocaine and adding about, which is a kilo is a thousand grams. So they were adding probably about another 300 grams to it. And then they were selling it at this time, uh, most likely in ounces. I don't think that they were selling kilos uh, just yet at that time when they first started with me. And uh, so they would make three times what I was selling it to them for. Wow. So the street value of this, by the time that they would sell it out in ounces and then people would want more, they pay you forty, forty-two thousand dollars $42,000. They could easily get something close to $180,000, $200,000 oh, once yeah. it's fully diluted. Yeah, selling it in ounces very, very easily. Very, very easily. But I mean, that's a lot of ounces and a lot of risk. And, you know, but they were very, they were a big part of that whole Miami disco life, right? Which I, the, only, the closest thing I ever came to any of that, and it wasn't a disco, is the mutiny, as you so well depict in your in your book that I love so much. So here's the interesting thing is the feds kind of swoop in and you get betrayed by Manuel Noriega. In fact, his torture, his interrogator comes in the Rolex watch that he stole from you and testifies against you in Miami. So you're taken offline in 1980? So in 1979, in April 1979, I get arrested in Panama and I came to the United States, I think in May of 1979. So I was standing in Miami on a sworn complaint. Right? No indictment. Because, I mean, and there was never a wiretap on me. There was never a picture on me. Little did I know that, and I wouldn't even find this out till many years later, that my attorney, Mel Kessler, who was like my best friend, was writing me out. But so in 1979, when I came, Miami kept me on a sworn indictment. They could not get a grand jury to uh, indict me. They took it to three districts in Florida, and none of them would return an indictment. And at the end of 79, when I'm about to get out, because there is no indictment, I'm still being held on $2 million bond at that time. They, uh, the Middle District of Georgia, which I had never in my life been there, where my co-defendant had a case from years ago, and I had just met this guy literally two, three months before we got arrested, had a case pending, and they tied me to that case. And they said, okay, you were the supplier to these guys, which I just met. And that's how I ended up, you know, but I got out in... When they could not return an indictment on me in November, Thanksgiving, and I hired the best legal minds in that world. You know, uh, Marty Weinberg, the most, one of the most brilliant lawyers I have ever met. I hired him. I had Shelby Heisman, who became a federal judge. So I, I had Austin Doyle, who ended up doing all of my taxes in at Washington, D.C. I was spending a million dollars in defense in 1979. Shelby, who was, uh, like I said, he had been a, a state judge, later on became a federal judge, at this time, he was a defense attorney, but his brother-in-law was Peter Fay, who was in the Court of Appeals. He petitioned that I would be left on bond because the government couldn't. We filed for speedy trial, and they couldn't do it. So they left me on bond. I got out uh, Thanksgiving Day of 1979. I was out on bond for two and a half months before trial uh, in January of 1980. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to George Valdez. Uh, I, I, I'm always at a loss of words to kind of describe you. You were U.S. head of the Medellin drug cartel, uh, but uh, after you served your prison sentence, you earned a master's degree from Wheaton College. In 1999, you earned your Ph.D. in New Testament studies from Loyola University, and now you lecture students, you talk to prisoners. Um, I am amazed when I look at it, and we talk about Willie and Sal and the people who inherited your uh, business after your 1980 misadventures is this then becomes a pursuit for the better part of 20, 25 years. If you look at when they were first snagged by um, Janet Reno in a state bus called Video Canary that kind of went nowhere, then they they become enormous cocaine dealers. They become the, the in guys for the Medellin cartel for much of the 1980s. They're on the lam. The law only catches up to them in 1991 in a bust. The indictment comes down alleging a $2 billion cocaine conspiracy in 1992. There was everything that happened in the mid-90s. You were, you were called to testify uh, against them, which you say in the book is very difficult for you. They were only uh, finally handed prison sentences, I believe, in Willie and Sal's case in 2002 and 2003. A couple of years ago, Willie Falcone was deported to Cuba uh, after he served his prison sentence. And I'm thinking of you and everything else you've accomplished throughout what are you thinking watching all this? These are kids that you grew up with. These are kids that were streetwise. Again, you talk about uh, growing up with the Magluta family and the bakery scraps. And to think that you were at the same time, you could have, you know, one or two things happened differently. You could have been a lawyer or a Federal Reserve governor right now. And here's something interesting, Robin, that's going to be told first time ever in your book, in, your, uh, in this podcast. When I get arrested, I don't even tell them anything about what I'm, you know, who my sources are. Until I finally get convicted and I get sent off. And then I realize about two months into it in 1980, about, I say March, hmm. that, listen, I can't run things from prison. Because originally I thought I would get out. They didn't know who my sources were. They didn't know who my buyers. They didn't know all the contacts that we had to bring in in the United States. They did knew absolutely nothing. As a matter of fact, the only person they dealt was with me. So when I finally realized that I cannot run this, I called Sal, and I give him everything. I said, look, this is my buyers in California. This is the sheriff in Clouston where you bring it through. I introduce him to Manny. This is who buys my main supplier. And I give him the entire infrastructure. And here's something very, very interesting. They're like, well, how much money do you want? I'm like, okay, so here's the deal. I'm going to give you enough to buy me 30 kilos. I give him a million, you know, I think it was about $700,000. All I want is that every time you bring a load through my sources, you buy that, and you sell it, and save me the money. And when I get out of prison, mm-hmm. you can pay me. So, I mean, they loved it. They agreed to it. And here's what's really interesting, because it's part of what, the, what happened with this case. Because, yeah, I was called as a witness for the government, but sadly enough, very few people know that the defense strategically used me. And what ended up happening was, unfortunately, that when I came out of prison and I went to see them, and I said, like, listen, where's my money? They didn't give me a cent. And what they said to me was that they had gone out when I got out. Now, did I believe it? Probably not, but that's the knowledge that I had, and that's the knowledge that I could testify to. When I decide to forfeit, when I get arrested my second time in uh, Mobile, Alabama, all the government wanted was my money because I had walked away from this business for four years. And they mm-hmm. just could not, understand, they could not stand it that, hey, there was this guy living the life of a multimillionaire in Clouston in this fancy horse farm. But, you know, I had changed my life. I walked away from this, and when I got arrested, you know, I had become a Christian three months earlier, and I felt that if I had a chance of starting a new life, 
finding meaning to my life, I had to come clean. Now, also helping me to come clean was the fact that this is now 1990. There was nothing that I had not done business with anybody for many, many years. So I knew that I could not testify against anyone. And the case where they indicted me is, was the people that I used when I came out of prison to bring cocaine for me. But I had walked done, I had stopped doing business with them for six years. So I knew that statute of limitations run out. I couldn't hurt anybody because that would have been a very difficult thing. But, you know, well, I, George, were you afraid for your life? Because this was the period of extradition where the heads of the Medellin cartel were on the lam. They were killing people in Miami. Their affiliates were killing people in Miami. Did you worry that they would preemptively do something to you? Were you worried for your life? Uh, I was never worried for my life. I mean, when I walked away from the cartel, I thought that I would be killed only because why is George Valdez walking away? I mean, there's no indictment. There's no investigation. What is going on? And, you know, when people don't know the unknown, then the best thing to do is, well, the dead can talk. But I didn't care about that. But when I came out, I knew that in my heart. Well, first and foremost, Robin, I felt that if I didn't make this change in my life, I didn't give a darn if someone killed me or not because I've been walking around dead for many, many years. And I had to find my life. So there was no other option for me than to come clean, give the government everything I had, face whatever was coming my way, and start a brand new life, whether it was in prison, outside, or whatever. But I remember when I came out of prison the second time at my father's house. Now, this time, the Medellin cartel is wiped out, right? The Cali cartel, they go to war. And I remember one of the principals from the Cali cartel coming to see me at my father's house or his attorney to tell me that I had nothing to worry about because they knew that years earlier, when I could have hurt one of them badly, when I first got arrested in Panama, I didn't. And they knew that at the age of 23, I was tortured. And the reason they knew this, Robin, because this is another thing that's really sad. Well, interesting enough, the reason the cartel knew what I did and what I said in Panama was because they went out and found the guy that tortured me. And when they found one of the guys that tortured me, not Lino who had ordered the torture, the actual torturer, the guy told them everything. You know, and I was really angry about that because they came to my dad's house, Manuel did, with the guy to tell my dad, Listen, you need to be very proud of your son. He took unbelievable abuse, didn't even give out his name. And I was angry because I never told my parents what I had suffered. I told them, hey, I, I was fine. I was treated well. And I'm, I went back to Manny. I'm like, listen, you didn't do it. You didn't bring this guy to my father's house to make my father proud. You did it because you wanted to know what I said. And I said, I, I don't mind that because I probably would have done the same thing. He's a 23-year-old kid. Mm. He's going to be tortured. They know how people are treated in Latin America. So who's going to withstand that? But, you know, the fact that they told my father is what really got me upset. So what, the, what ends up happening is, and this is something, you know, in the article that it talks about me testifying against Sal that they don't mention is, his attorney who represented him, Martin Weinberg, the only reason he represented him was because I waived the right for him to represent him. He was my attorney. That's how they found out about him. So because I waived the right for him to represent me because I had nothing to hide, what ended up, the card that they ended up playing was that I was going to tell the truth. And the truth was that when I came out of prison, I never dealt with them. You know, they told me they had quit when I quit, whether that was true or not. I could only testify to what I knew to be a fact. So the defense, what they used to find, even though they bribed the juror, was the fact that, listen, yeah, they were drug dealers. They made millions, but statute of limitation ran out. You had your chance. You didn't convict them. So in, 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 the, in sadness now, looking back, 
the defense used me as, you know, an unwilling witness, but just knowing the fact that I was a Christian and I was going to tell the truth no matter. And I told the government that, listen, I will tell the truth and nothing but the truth. I'm not going to make anything up, whoever likes or not. I was not released because I was going to be a witness for Sal and Willie. You know, when I made my deal with the government in Alabama, I made my deal based upon my forfeiture. You know, I forfeited millions of dollars to Jeff Session, who at that time was a U.S. attorney in the Middle District of Alabama. And the thing with Sal came in years later. And the fact that the government came back to me and like, okay, you know, you got to come clean. You came clean. So now we got them. And we're going to call you as a witness on how they started. So very, very complicated case. I've never explained that to anybody. But I didn't make a deal. I did not get released because I was a witness. I was released before I even testified in Sal's trial. I've been already doing my PhD in Loyola in Chicago for almost a year. Well, talk to me about that. How did you make that three-point turn in prison? You say you accepted Christ, but then uh, you had various mentors who came to you. Uh, was it Walter Elwell at, at Wheaton College? And then you found, I mean, you went back, hit the books again. You, you still had the degree from the University of Miami. Was that finished? Yeah, what happened, uh, Robin, was three months before I got arrested, when I walked away from the cartel, I hired this guy to teach me karate. And the guy was a, a born-again Christian, but it's really interesting enough. And this is something I tell, I tell people today. You know, this guy never told me to convert, never told me to become a Christian, never told me to go to church. What he did every time was he would show me how happy he was in, a, in what I considered that time a crappy little world, married to the same woman for 20 years, so madly in love. And I'm like, my world is so big and I'm miserable. My women are gorgeous and I hate them. How can this guy be happy? All he kept telling me was he had an intimate relationship with Christ. And that was weird to me because I couldn't understand how that could be. After all I had been, I couldn't have a relationship with anybody. Well, lo and behold, one day, it was July 1st, 9.30 in the morning, my divorce from my ex-wife came through, and I remember seeing her drag my baby away. And as she was driving, dragging her away, I'm like, you know, I got to change my life. Something's got to give. And I remember going into my room at 9.30 and saying, Jesus, I don't believe you're real. I don't believe you exist. And if you do, you're probably looking at me and say, George, you're so bad. I don't want you up here. I said, but I need what this man has got. And I can buy it. And my money can buy anything in this world. Change me or kill me. Well, change me or kill me. Three months later, I get arrested. All of a sudden, to really pressure me, they're charging me with eight life sentences. Because what happened is, the people I was dealing with way back when I walked away from everything, the minimum mandatory sentences had not come on board yet. I walked away early in 87, and they didn't come in until November of 87, I believe. Anyway, uh, so even though literally all they could charge me was with violation of parole, they were threatening me to charge me with the same crimes that my main supplier, Dickie Lynn, who I had met in prison and brought all those loads for me, was being charged. You know, continue criminal enterprise. You get charged for the largest crime. So even with that, when I made my deal with the government, I remember walking into the judge's chamber, uh, and he's looking at me and like, first words out of his mouth, Mr. Valdez, I reject any agreement you reach with the government now or ever. I want you to know that it's every bit of my intention to sentence you to a life sentence. Young man, you will die in a federal prison. I mean, I looked at Robin, I'm like, Your Honor, with all due respect, you can only give me what God wants, and I couldn't care less where I die. Because if God doesn't change my heart and my life, I'm just walking dead anyway. Well, within those three months of having become a born-again Christian, what ends up happening is my father's diagnosed with cancer is going to die. 
My ex-wife disappears for two years with my children, which were the life of me. And I'm facing a life sentence, and a judge just told me I'm going to die in a federal prison. But I couldn't care less because I had to start all over again. So the deal the government made me, I remember the prosecutor saying, Mr. Valdez, lots of money, little time. Little money, lots of time. Now, the government believed two things. Number one, they knew I walked away on my own. Number two, they knew that here I am pleading guilty when Robin, Alan Ross is telling me, George, you're going to walk. The only witness against you just killed himself last night in the fog. He was smuggling cocaine using a DEA plane. So all they really wanted was, because if you remember now, 1990, there was a big emphasis on forfeitures, right? U.S. Attorney's Office were, uh, you know, rated by how much money they took in. Well, my forfeiture there, which, you know, in my eyes was over $50 million. The government felt that it was 8 to $10 million because they blew the sale of it. But it was an enormous amount. Had that forfeiture been in New York or Miami, it would have been nothing. But in Mobile, Alabama, it was immense. And the fact that I volunteered, gave it back, I didn't fight it, and went back and, listen, give me whatever you got. You know, I think that God used all that to give me the sentence that I really deserved, which was the last 10 years that I had because all they could really charge me was me admitting to having violated my parole. You know, there's one thing I can never forget is that when you were at the MCC prison facility, uh, uh, various en route going between trials and, and deliberations with DEA people and whatnot, you noticed out of the corner of your eye, you were reunited with Manuel Noriega, who was snagged and brought into Miami, he passed away several years ago, but the United States had finally turned on him. What did that feel like when you were on the way out and he was there for the rest of his life? You know, it's amazing. I said that the world is round and it keeps coming around. And what happened, I went in the yard and at this time they had set up almost like a cage for him. So when you're in the yard, you walk in literally, you can touch the bars to his cell. Now he had a bed that we didn't have. He had an exercise machine, but I walked up to him and I said, uh, general, you don't look that tough in the monkey suit. You know, at that time he had the orange suit like the, and he just would not even respond to me. He, he looked down like he was reading a book and wouldn't even talk to me. But I'm like, you know, Here's life. Back then, you thought you were bigger than life. You were big, better than anyone. And you're nothing but a convicted drug dealer just like me. So, you know, that was, that was a really surreal experience. But, you know, going back to your question of what happened, you know, I'm looking at myself and, um, you know, I have this desire to become the best theologian in the world. I want to, since I didn't believe God exists or anything, I wanted to find out about it. And I just kept reading and reading and reading the Bible. And I said to myself, you know, I'm going to make something out of this prison experience. I'm going to make believe I'm in a monastery, and I'm just going to walk away, and I'm going to get as many degrees as they allow me to get while I'm in here. And I started studying uh, through correspondence, and that's how I got another bachelor's from uh, Southeastern College in uh, Bible. Then I started doing my master's from Wheaton, and then hoping that I would be released so I could finish my master's. And then when I was released, I finished my master's at Wheaton. Then I applied to Loyola in Chicago for a PhD. I started a, a little cleaning company. I said I could clean toilets, I could clean carpet with my wife in the basement of our house. So with a PhD, you were cleaning toilets? You know, I, I remember my book came out, and I was doing, I was in every major radio and television station in America, and I remember I would go, the publisher would send a limo to pick me up, and a limo to bring me back, and it was like Superman. I would come back from uh, speaking to her, from uh, speaking to 10,000 people, uh, doing an appearance on a major television radio program, and I would come up to where my wife was doing the job, and I would take off my suit, stick it in my backpack, and end up, I had already my cleaning uniform, my service master uniform underneath. And we did that for years. And uh, eventually, I built it into a multi-million dollar company. And then one day, I said, look, uh, 
if a man cannot define when enough is enough, only greed's going to drive him. I had two little kids then, and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit speaking. At that time, I was the most thought-after Christian speaker in America. I was doing some of the major events. I did the Memorial of Columbine. I gave a keynote address with Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in Washington. I addressed the flag officers of the Pentagon. I was doing events with 10, 20,000 people. And not a dollar of that I kept because I had made a promise I would never live by my story. I was like, people are going to say George Valdez made a lot of money dealing drugs. Now he's making a lot of money selling Jesus. So I wanted to pay for my life. I wanted to live a good life. I wanted to drive a nice car. But I didn't want it off a $20 donation. So every penny I got, we gave away to buy books to send to prisoners all over the country so they could find hope and redemption. So that if they could at least see that if I change, they could change. At the end of the day, here's the thing. The world is pretty messed up. We can do two things. We can either sit back and cry about it. But Robin, I believe I can change the world. And I'm going to. And, you know, and changing might just mean changing one young kid, not to become George Valdez or Sal Magluda or Willie Falcon. If I can do that, I've changed the world. I think I can change a lot more. I hope that I can uh, help families become families again to tell men, listen, the problem we are in the, that we're having today is because men have quit being men. You know, you need to honor your family. We don't need to abandon our family and our kids in search of more zeros because that's all it is. I recently addressed some of the wealthiest people in Wall Street in New York, and I'm like, how many more zeros do you all need? And I feel like if I can help people to find meaning to their lives, if I can revive families, if I can tell husbands, listen, uh, it's not green on the other side of the fence, and, and to be joyous in your marriage and to honor your wife and to place your family above everything else. And listen, your kids don't need a car. Your kids don't need an extra house. Your kids don't need any of those things that you believe that they need. Your kids need something that is free, your presence. So, you know, that, that is my goal. And at 63 is my last hurrah, is my, uh, I would say, the legacy I want to build. Like I tell people, listen, when the pages of history are written, will history ever remember your name? History will not remember anybody's name because they built a great company or they have all this beautiful mansion. History remembers the name of those who impact other people's lives. Yeah, George Valdez, U.S. head of the Medellin cartel in a former life. Uh, you have to read the book Coming Clean. Listen to the Narco Mindset podcast. Uh, sir, I cannot wait to read the uh, update on this book, which you're still working on. Yes, and uh, as a matter of fact, I just finished it, and I'll just send you a copy of it. Thank you, sir. It's all in Amazon. Full disclosure, this show airs on NPR member station VPM News on NPR.org and on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. I'm Robin Farzad. Dare to say no. Back with you next week. <laughs>